Greetings, everyone. This is Peter Diarg again with the next episode of the podcast, Y2K and Autobiography. The title for this one is Articles as Artifacts and Something New. As I've put this podcast together, I'm beginning to realize it's not your normal podcast. It is a historical look back, and therefore the format is not like other podcasts. I've done things that other podcasters haven't done, wouldn't do for any reason. I found an old recording of a presentation I did many, many years ago, and that was the the content. This time I'm doing something even more peculiar. I'm going to seek out a couple of the articles I wrote way back when, and a couple of things I did, and just read them, so that we have a voice from the past, even if it was in the form of the article. Now, for those of you really curious about the history of Y2K, you can go to a resource on the internet that I think is underutilized. That resource is the Wayback Machine, just wayback.com. If you go there and typed in year2000.com and then chose one of the snapshots that they took, my suggestion would be something March or April in the year 2000. That way you get everything. Then you'll see the articles we post. One of the most interesting areas in my mind is the archives, especially some of the featured articles. During Y2K, we had several ways of communicating. I've mentioned these already. First was the media. This was mass population type of communications. Never got deep into the weeds, usually given less than two or three minutes to talk about Y2K. And while it was necessary to get the word out, it really didn't talk about Y2K in any deep way. The next form of communication that we used to great effect were the conferences, where people like Irene Deck and other people we've interviewed, and myself, would get up and speak for an hour and pontificate, if you want, about the problem that they were dealing with and what we thought the solution might be. Those are very effective for the people in the audience but they don't have any long, wide effect across an entire population or an industry. They speak to the people that were in the room, numbering anywhere from a 100 to a couple of thousand. And they're also very ephemeral. I never handed out scripts of what I said because I wouldn't know what I say until I got up in front of the audience and saw how they responded. And then one of the other more powerful and long-lasting ways was the writing of articles. And for myself, the platform I used was the platform I created, the year2000.com website. We were getting about a million hits a month, give or take, uh, month in and month out. There was feedback channels, there were feedback loops to the articles where people could comment on on them uh, in various ways, either by directing uh, email to me individually or by getting on the mailing list and the discussion forums that we had. So what I want to do is select a couple of the articles that were posted there. But again, I would advise you, if you really wanted to get a snapshot of Y2K, that would be one of the best resources that you could find. It linked to other articles as well. I don't know if those links are still active, but a lot of of the articles were actually posted on the site. I'm going to do three this time. The first one I'm going to do was an article I wrote that was basically the script of the testimony I gave before the Science Committee in the U.S. on May 14, 1996. I was invited to testify before the House of Representatives. The title for the article and the testimony was Unjustified Optimism. 
And all I'm going to do is read it practically word for word so you get a sense of what we were saying at the time, or rather, to be more precise, what I was saying. So let's start. Computer practitioners are the most optimistic people in the world. Despite all evidence to the contrary, we believe the next application we write will be bug-free. It will also be delivered on time. We believe the bug we just found is the last one. We believe the next release of a software product will solve all the errors in the prior release and introduce no new errors. Sadly, those beliefs are totally without foundation. Our clients know this. We have a reputation of always missing delivery deadlines. Have we earned, have we earned this reputation? The facts speak for themselves. According to studies done by Capers Jones, fewer than 14% of projects, larger than 100,000 function points, I'm not going to explain that here, in size, about 12.5 million lines of code, C code, are delivered on time. We also believe we can solve the year 2000 problem in time. Now remember who I'm presenting this to. These are senators and congresspeople and all these types of people who are not technical people and therefore need to be addressed in non-technical terms to a large extent. Article continues. The year 2000 project is unique. Four elements of that uniqueness are the timeline, the deadline cannot be missed. This is unique in IT projects. Most IT projects have flexibility. This one did not. There were hard-lit deadlines. Next, it is an immovable deadline. We can't mess around with this. In the past, if we'd missed a delivery date, we could continue to use what we use today. When the year 2000 problem arrives, the programs we used yesterday will be useless. Unless the applications are fixed and available on January the 1st, all businesses lose the ability to do business. I'm at a loss as to how to communicate that message any simpler. I will leave it to you to contemplate what happens to the worldwide economy if businesses lose the ability to do business. Point number three. That deadline bears no relationship to the size of the task. Regardless if you have a single program to fix or 75,000 programs to fix, the deadline is the same. Usually we set deadlines by the size of the task and how long we estimate it will take to complete the task with available resources. The nature of this problem is, removes the part of the planning process. This deadline is January the 1st, 2000, regardless of resources, regardless of the size of your task. You will have heard from some witnesses that you can be rest assured they will complete this project on time. This is nothing more than the unjustified optimism. We must weigh their testimony against their past track record of delivering on time. We must then adjust their testimony further to take into account the following realities. First, they cannot tell you in detail how large their task is. Example, how many lines of code or applications they manage. Point two, they cannot tell you when their software vendors will be year 2000 compliant because the vast majority of vendors have not yet disclosed those release schedules. Example, operating systems, system utilities, third-party applications. Point three, they cannot tell you when their business partners will be changing their data formats and how those data formats change. For example, when will the Federal Reserve Bank change from two to four-digit years? And finally, and perhaps most importantly, we come to the fourth unique aspect of the problem. We all share the same deadline. This adds a very large, unpredictable, and non-technical complication to the problem. What will organizations do to make sure they don't miss a deadline they cannot afford to miss? They'll want to hire the best and will be willing to pay whatever is required to get them. Let's rephrase that. 
they'll raid other organizations for the best, most skilled, most respected. The worst thing to happen to a project team working to a deadline that cannot be missed is to lose key team members. Any project subject to this risk has no right to claim we can be rest assured. The situation is critical. More than 65% of North American businesses have not yet begun to address the problem. For many, it is already too late. There are less than 140 weekends left before December 31st, 1998. You should be complete by then so that you can allocate all of 1999 to test the hundreds of thousands of error-prone changes we've introduced to the systems. 65% of North American businesses are unaware or of even this minimal planning strategy. We have no time for unjustified optimism, nor have we time for cautious optimism. We have time only for highly accelerated sense of urgency. A meager allotment of time is rapidly slipping away. I've kept my testimony brief because I want to keep my message as concise and as clear as possible. The points again. First, the deadline is real, immovable, and cannot be missed. Point two, we have less than 140 weekends left to complete the task. Three, less than 35% of North American businesses have begun. Point four, those active find this to be the most complex project they've ever attempted. Point five, there are neat non-technical obstacles in our path. Point six, the IS community suffers under a delusion of infallible confidence. Despite a proven track record of on-time delivery no greater than 14%, Point seven, the sense of urgency required to complete this task on time is absent. I wish to thank you for the opportunity to testify on this matter. I hope that my testimony today contributes in some small way to the arguments and testimony already presented. If we have any hope of delivering on time in the future, despite our record of delivering late in the past, then we must replace unjustified optimism with a determined urgency. Along with that, I wish us luck. We're going to need it. Here's truly Peter Diager. Now, keep in mind when that was that testimony was given. It was given in 1996, or beginning of the year, May 14th. So at that point, a lot of organizations hadn't looked at the issue. What was important to understand is that the ones that were looking were the ones that had the biggest problems, which is a good thing. The one that comes to mind is financial systems. Everybody in the financial industry knew that this was reality. They took simple looks at their systems, did simple, simple tests, and came back, you know, shocked and awed by how fast a problem could replicate through their system. This was important. They were beginning. Did I overstate the case then? Remember, what I'm trying to create is a sense of urgency. Were some of the statements hyped? Yes, agreed, absolutely. And if you'd asked me at the time, I would have said that as well. The reality, though, is that we weren't very good in the IT industry at delivering on time. That had to be factored in, and it had to be used, if you wish, as a bludgeon to drive home that the sooner we get started, the better the chance of success at the time. Now, the next article I'm going to choose, I, I think, is also an important one. It was several years later, March the 1st, 1999. And the article I'm going to refer to is the one called Doomsday Avoided, which is, without a doubt, uh, on par with the original Doomsday article, which was Doomsday 2000, published in 1993. This one is being written, oh, six years on after that one. 1993 was the start of this whole mess. By 1999, 
I believed that we had turned the corner. So I decided to write an article to make that statement, and it was the first really public statement I'd made that we had, well, broken the back of Y2K and that all would be well on the day. So let's read it, and then if we have time, what I'm going to do is cover off some of the responses because this one um, stirred a hornet's nest, to say the very, very least. So Doomsday Avoided, March 1st, 1999. We've finally broken the back of Y2K problem. I've been making that statement now for about six months, usually in presentations. Naturally, it has generated some interest and a handful of email. The comments range from polite requests for me to state, in my own words, what exactly I meant by broken the back of Y2K, to the outraged rants from folks intent on selling the world panic, gold coins, and plots of otherwise worthless real estate. Naturally, any good news about Y2K spoils the fun and intentions of those trying to incite panic and runs on the bank. So what do I mean when I say confidently that we've broken the back of Y2K? In short, I mean we've overcome the largest Y2K hurdle. The Y2K problem was never the actual act of fixing the code or the embedded systems. More on that later. It was the inaction and denial regarding a problem so easily demonstrated as real and pressing and possessing consequences far exceeding its humble beginnings. Overcoming denial was always a larger, more complicated, difficult, and frustrating task than actually fixing the broken code. To support this perspective, we have to step backwards in time a bit. It must also become very, very much a personal perspective and commentary. I find it curious in the extreme for a long time that I was labeled with the slurs of doomsayer, fearmonger, and dread merchant, and chicken little. I was labeled as an idiot, someone who didn't understand how systems were maintained, and on several occasions my mental health was questioned. My message was always a simple one. The code is broken. I can prove it. If we don't fix it, then we face unpleasant consequences. The key phrase here, the whole reason for my involvement with Y2K was, if we don't fix it. If you actually read my articles and listen to my presentations, there are several transcripts available on the internet and on tapes, both audio and video, so we do have a reliable record of my statements. Rather than rely on the sometimes incredibly inaccurate quotes of the media, then you will hear that message repeated time and time again. It was repeated ad nauseum over a period of eight years. The core message never changed. Fix this or face consequences. The reporters who did attempt some investigative reporting in those early days were stonewalled. They asked banks if such a problem existed and were told it was either a result of a fevered imagination or was a trivial problem not worth discussing. Was it an unnecessary message if someone suggested? Did we, myself, and many others really have to make such noise about Y2K? Or would people have taken care of this anyway? Good question. In a perfect experiment, we'd roll the clock back eight years and watch what happens as myself and others say and do nothing to raise the alarm. We can't do that. But we can open our eyes a bit and examine our current situation. The most widely recognized best practice on Y2K projects is triage, a concept I introduced to the Y2K lexicon in an early article published in the American Programmer magazine. Consider with no attempt at saving face what exactly triage is. It's an admission that we were so incompetent as an industry and we started the project so late that we didn't leave ourselves enough time to fix all the applications we were responsible for. The practice of triage is an embarrassment. It's an ultimate proof, for me at least, that raising the warning was necessary. Without our warning, the IT industry would still be asleep at the wheel. All of the above relates to the known provable software problem. 
the embedded system problem was very different. The severity of this problem was a total unknown. Nobody, until fairly recently, had any idea how big this problem was. There was certainly no proof that the problem was either pervasive or rare, but there was sufficient evidence to suggest it was crucial, or even a matter of life and death, to find out if it was real. The proof of its existence was sitting on millions of desktops. PCs did not, for the most part, automatically roll from 1999 to 2000 without incident. Another bit of evidence was flying above our heads. The GPS systems had a known date problem. Not exactly a Y2K problem, but close enough. If we had problems both on the ground and in the heavens, then the chances were pretty good we'd find them elsewhere as well. It turns out we were right. The challenge to get people to examine everything that might have been a problem, how to do that? By creating reasonable scenarios for failure in an attempt to get people to examine embedded chips of all shapes and sizes. The results? Problems were found in medical devices, navigational aids, assembly equipment, and retail equipment, to mention only a few. The good news, in some ways, very little was identified as posing problems. The bad news, the problem was real, and we have to address it at great expense. Did everything we speculate about prove to cause problems? Nope. But until we checked, no one could say it was an unnecessary activity. Here's the summary. Until we started to fix our code and examine the embedded system problem, then practically any doomsday scenario was a legitimate possibility. Here's where we are today. Most, not all, companies are working on this issue. They are fixing, or have fixed, their systems. They have examined or are examining their embedded systems problems. We are, for the most part, no longer ignoring Y2K. Throughout all of this, my primary concern was with the Iron Triangle, the three industries which must operate daily, or very quickly society begins to unravel at the seams. They are, in no particular order, finance, telecommunications, and power companies. I stopped worrying about the finance industry in 1997. The level of activity was high, the regulators were beginning to wake up, and attention was finally being paid to the problem at all levels. None of this is meant to suggest that the finance industry is not going to have problems. There will be problems, many of them. Each one will be handled in turn by an industry which, more than any other, understands their dependency on technology. For the record, my money will remain in the bank. For the record, anyone who's suggesting that we take all our money out of the banks is deliberately attempting to bring about a run on the bank, and they can only be classified by any reasonable person as an enemy of the people. More to the point, the finance industry is nearing completion of their task. Again, this statement does not apply to every bank. There are exceptions, exceptions which the regulators are getting ready to act upon. Nor are all countries at the same level. Those who are most dependent are further ahead those who are less dependent further behind. An exception to this is Japan, a country whose actions on Y2K still astound and confound me. Next, the telecommunications industry. My concern began to diminish about a year ago. The word back from the industry is simple enough. That which they expected to fail, fails. That which should not have failed, doesn't. It means that there have been no surprises. They do have problems, mainly in the administrative functions of the network. Problems they can cope with by implementing workarounds. Bottom line, dial tone is secure, but don't expect your bills on time. Any complaints? Finally, the big bugaboo, the power industry. I wish I was as confident here as I am with the other two points on the triangle. The statements, reports, and press releases from this industry are wishy-washy, confusing, and misleading. On one hand, we have dozens of power stations already working in the year 2000 by advancing their clocks. 
On the other hand, we have statements offering little assurance. Example, from the Canadian Electrical Association, most entities report nothing which would have opened a circuit cut off power, implying obliquely, I think, that some entities have reported problems which did cut off power. Which is it? Are there problems or aren't there? The answer may be hidden in some of the off-the-record conversations which go something like this. Peter, we didn't find anything that would have cut off the power. But the lawyers won't say that, since it comes across as a guarantee that we'll have power that day. So we have to suggest we did find problems. This obstacle of lawyers is evident in all industries. I know of banks, payroll companies, government agencies, insurance companies, water companies, etc., etc., who have told me privately that they're done, complete, finished but cannot announce this good news because of the lawyers. And then there is the media for whom, and this is an admitted generalization, good news is not good copy. It is this private information, more than anything which is available to the public press, which compels me to state we've broken the back of Y2K. And, of course, the Iron Triangle does not make up the sum total of our computer dependence. There are other industries. There are global interdependencies, and there are market issues, etc., I haven't ignored these in my analysis. I'd like to suggest we're a bit more resilient than someone have us believe. I'd like to suggest that production processes with a long lead time, like the production of chemicals, pharmaceuticals, and food, are little affected by isolated out outages of a week or even a month, especially when we have 10 months to go and are smart enough to increase production levels to take into account any production hiccup. In addition, I'd like to point out that there is nothing which is shipped from overseas which could not be stockpiled for a month in anticipation of a one-month shipping delay. I'd go even further, with the exception of some ph pharmaceuticals, that there's nothing shipped to any country which we could not do without for a month. Have we solved Y2K? No, not entirely. But we have avoided the doomsday scenarios. The next 12 months are going to be fascinating to watch. But will, it will not, contrary to the ravings found in some of the media reports and in many places on the Internet, be Teotwaki. Teotwaki stands for the end of the world as we know it. Through hard work and effort, we've broken the back of Y2K. Yours truly, Peter Diager, March the 1st, 1999. Okay, that was doomsday avoided. And you would have had to have been in my office uh, over the coming weeks, shortly after that one, to get a sense of what was really being relayed back to me. It was an interesting few weeks, and I finally... In a bit of frustration, quite frankly, and you'll hear some of the heat in the next part, decided that I would respond to these um, on the website, which is where people would go and look for a response from me. So this one, <laughs> yes, there's some anger in it, and it comes through. Now, the, uh, the person sitting doing this right now is, is sort of tempted not to do this because the heat is a little bit too much. But I figured in the interest of being totally objective and fair to everybody's listening, that I will read it pretty much verbatim. Besides, it's available on the Wayback Machine. So if um, you don't like some heat, there won't be any foul, foul language, but there will certainly be an inclination towards it. And you can tell I'm smiling and sort of chuckling at this. So let's go. Greetings, folks. Needless to say, I've received a few dissenting notes regarding doomsday avoided. I'm getting to be an old hand at this. Remember, for years before many of you, most, all, were even aware of the problem, I received many notes telling me how wrong I was, as well as many, many articles claiming Y2K was a fraud and a hoax. It's an all-too-familiar situation. 
Some of you have suggested that I've said the problem is totally fixed. Really? I said this? I'd love to know where. Here's a fact I made a big deal of in the article. We were so incompetent as an industry, we started a project so late, we didn't leave ourselves enough time to fix all the applications we were responsible for maintaining. The practice of triage is an embarrassment. Could someone please tell me how this is good news? Or how we were able to translate this into, Peter said we don't have a problem. Our best business practice is to ignore broken systems. Not a good sign. Some of you have correctly repeated something I said several times in the article, as if I were somehow unaware of it. Not everybody is working on this. Companies are still in denial. I said it this way. Most, not all companies are working on this issue. So we are violently in agreement. Okay, so we agree. Most, not all companies are working on this. There's a sizable percentage doing nothing. Here's my assertion. We've avoided global bank failures, global power outages, global communications collapse. These doomsday scenarios, what was the title of my article? Have been avoided. That's good news and needs to be stated loudly and strongly. Why? Because there are charlatans and religious extremists masquerading as technical experts and conspiracy theorists posing as computer consultants who are saying everything is going to go with 100% certainty collapse around our heads. They're wrong and they know it. Trouble is the media and the average Joe in the street doesn't. So a percentage of companies are not doing enough, but we've avoided the doomsday scenarios. Here's the dilemma. Do you continue to raise the alarm in a feeble attempt to make everybody work on the problem and play into the hands of the charlatans by feeding the growing panic? Or do you recognize and accept, albeit reluctantly, that while there is still work to be done, we have avoided the doomsday scenarios, that we have indeed bypassed the worst of the technical problems, and now it is time to turn your attention to the hard reality that the charlatans are scaring the population more than necessary? This is not spin, as some have just suggested. It is merely a recognition that the worst has passed, that Teotwaki is unadulterated nonsense spread by those either ignorant of the issues or those who have hidden agendas. In addition to the fact that the worst is behind us, we also have to wrestle with the following. A question for everyone. It's actually more of a challenge, since you've taken exception to what I've posted. It's one you better have an answer to. When you're standing before an idiot company headed by incompetent managers who have not yet started their Y2K projects, what is it that you're going to say to convince them to act that hasn't already been said over the last decade? Or are you so deep in denial you ignore the fact that some people have placed themselves beyond help? Or so arrogant you believe you, after a decade of rhetoric, have found the unvoiced magical words that will unlock their closed minds? If you have them, send them to me. I'll use them. Better yet, another question. What will you say to a reporter who is asking you a Y2K question for the 6 o'clock news that will convince a Y2K unconscious business to act, but that at the same time will not panic the casual listener? If you take exception to my message, you'd better have alternatives. In other words, you better have answers to above questions. Otherwise, you'll make a bad situation worse. Again, for the record, I stated loudly and I think clearly, because I believe it to be true, we've avoided the doomsday scenarios. We've not avoided all the problems associated with Y2K. If you have any doubt of this, please keep an eye on this webpage over the next few days. Specifically, look for an article entitled Personal Y2K Preparations. Some of your messages started out, How dare you use your bully pulpit? Here's how I dare. I created it. 
I created for exactly this purpose. I created it by working 100-hour work weeks for the past five years. That's exactly how I did my bit to spread the word on Y2K. That's why it exists. That's why I dare. Other messages started, I've lost a lot of respect for you. Folks, that's unfortunate, but I believe it is a temporary condition. In the beginning, when I started my efforts to create awareness, I ran into many obstacles. The ones that affected me most deeply were those that questioned my integrity or motivations. I pressed on and won the respect of many people, not to mention the small, tiny fact that I was proven to be correct. I believe these messages will be followed, perhaps a year from now, perhaps much sooner, with different notes containing a different message. If not, then I'll at least rest easy knowing that I was true to my beliefs, even if I do turn out to be wrong. Unlike the charlatans, I'm willing to accept and admit publicly that I cannot predict the future with 100% certainty. What choice do I have but to speak the truth as I see it? Some messages try to make the point that even if we've jumped the hurdle of denial, we must jump all of them to succeed. That's a fair point. But I'll say again that the denial hurdle was the tallest. Clear this one, and the rest is a relative non-issue. Inevitably, some messages started. You've obviously sold out and are being paid to tone down the discussion. Sigh. I've been accused day and night for the past eight years of selling out, first to the vendors and now to the establishment. It's become a rather old and tired argument with little substance. I have no real defense against this attack. I cannot prove my opinions are my own. Those who wish to believe this accusation can choose to do so. Those who know me personally know, without a shadow of a doubt, that this is not the case. As I said before, what choice do I have but speak the truth as I see it? Folks, in closing, I said we've broken the back of Y2K. I never said the beast was dead. Which brings me, at last, to the most ludicrous category of messages. Those I started with, why are you telling people not to make preparations? At this point, I'll admit to practically uncontrollable urge to use at least some mild profanity to describe these messages. Even worse, those assertions have been sent to various mail lists. I said practically uncontrollable. I've learned some restraint over the years. Folks, you're going to have to search high and low to find me ever saying personal preparations are unnecessary for Y2K. Your search will fail miserably. I've never said that. And it is unlikely I will say it between now and year 2000. Although I might, if I receive good enough news to warrant it, regardless of how you, gentle critic, would view me. I have never said preparations are unnecessary. I have said that anyone who is telling you to remove all, the key word here is all, your money from the banks is either ignorant or of, of computer systems in general, Y2K in particular, or is simply a charlatan. I have never said preparations are unnecessary. I have said that planning for one-year disruptions, stockpiling one-year supplies of anything, buying guns and running for the hills are overreactions. I have never said preparations are unnecessary. I have said that preparations along the lines of those sufficient to cope with a Montreal ice storm are reasonable and prudent. I've gone even further and stated that parents have a responsibility to their kids to always maintain that level of preparation, regardless of Y2K. I have never said that preparations are unnecessary. In fact, I have assisted and supported those organizations who are putting together community projects in place and have taken the time to contact and work with me. Uh, don't deluge me with requests. There are only so many hours available. I, unfortunately, must say no far more often than I can say yes. I have never said preparations are unnecessary. In fact, my number two message to organizations, number one message focuses on Y2K communications, both internally and externally to your organization, is one of contingency planning, which, surprise, surprise, includes what? Preparation. Final comment. Honest. It's the form of a promise to the reader, whoever you are. 
I have always chosen to work on the biggest problem facing us, which I could have a positive impact on. Years ago, that was the denial surrounding Y2K. Today, it is the hype. I have and always will speak honestly about this subject based upon the facts I have at my disposal. When those facts change, so will my message. When the facts in the past were bad, I pulled no punches. I never backed down, and I told it like I saw it. I've lost friendships over my position on Y2K. Similarly, when there is good news to communicate it, I'll communicate it, regardless of the consequences. Here's truly Peter Yarger, March 17th, 1999. So there you have it. Rather large article, the doomsday avoided one. And the response was interesting at the time. We were coming to the end of Y2K, uh, without a doubt. And there were lots of heated opinions, very, very strongly held opinions. And to a fair number of people, they did see me as selling out, that I had been bought off somehow, and in order to avoid a major panic, I was singing a falsehood. That wasn't the case. As I said before in this podcast, I don't know if this is interesting to you. To me, it's a part of the story. It's a part of the history. And once again, I'd suggest that if you really want to take a first-hand look at how Y2K played out, go to the Wayback Machine. Uh, also, give them a donation, will you, if you do use them a fair bit. Uh, go to them, type in the year 2000, look at one of the snapshots taken in uh, March or April of the year 2000, and take a look at the articles. There are articles by myself, many more, and there are articles by many, many other people. There's also an area called Promises Kept. Promises Kept was a, an interesting page on the website. It was basically a bunch of statements from organizations who had fixed their problems and were ready to state it publicly. There are dozens and dozens of statements from organizations who wanted the opportunity to say, hey, we heard about Y2K, we did our job, and we fixed it. The next little segment we're going to do is a little bit different from for this podcast, and it's going to be ongoing until this podcast closes. This was never intended to be an eternal podcast. I have no intention of going to 100 installments. At the very, very beginning, I figured it would be about 12 or 13, somewhere around there. We're sort of pushing that now. I have a couple more that I want to do. I think the next episode is going to be a couple of other articles that I think were relevant, and I'll, I'll read them out. Uh, think of it as an audio book if you want to look at it that way. There may be some visuals associated with this, but I don't think so. I think this will be bare bones, and it'll be put into the on-demand area as well. Hello, everyone. This is going to be one of the inserts that we're doing on a fairly regular basis as we move forward with the podcast. The insert is called Tangential IT Discussions. And I'm going to continue a conversation with, that I've had with James Lauber. James Lauber was on the interview series part. I haven't heard him in the actual podcast before, but we have done an interview with him. He's director of Grafton-SST, and his website is www.grafton-sst.com. James, say hello to everybody, give him a bit of an introduction, and then pass it back to me and we'll get started on this one. Well, hello, and thank you for the introduction, Peter. Uh, it's a pleasure to be invited back to look at uh, these transcendental IT discussions, in this case, Y2038 with you. I wanted to point, I just wanted to stop and say I really enjoyed uh, your Y2K retrospectives series, and I was really surprised at how much I learned because when I was going through Y2K as a project manager, uh, 
I was deep in the trenches and I didn't have the like 10,000 foot view that you've provided in this series. And it's been absolutely fascinating. So hats off to you. Thanks, Ben. And sure. And now going forward, I'm really looking forward to shifting focus a bit into some of the things that are coming into our collective future. The one we'll be talking about a little bit today is the Y2038, but there's other strange things that happen as well. So I'm really looking forward to uh, doing this uh, a few more times. So thanks, uh, thanks very much for the invitation. Welcome aboard. The topic today is the 2038 problem. And I must admit, that throughout Y2K, I was asked about this on a fairly frequent basis. And I always responded in pretty much exactly the same way, because this is a blind spot for me during Y2K. You see, 2038 wasn't going to happen for a while, and I was focused on the one that was happening right around the corner. So I really didn't look into this. I knew basically what it was but I had a totally misconceived notion about what it was. Now, to my credit, I never messed up in an interview. When I was asked about 2038, I always responded the same way. I haven't looked into that. All I know is it's an issue, and it's an issue with Unix systems. And as long as I kept saying exactly that, I was fine. If they'd pushed a little bit harder, I might have made a big mistake. If they'd asked me, Peter, will this problem affect PCs? The chances are I would have said no. Because here's the thing. I started programming on a PDP-11. And at that time, PDP-11s ran Unix. Pretty much nothing else did. So firmly fixed in my mind was is that the Unix was a hardware system and people are cringing in the background as they hear that. Unix isn't a hardware platform. Unix is an operating system. But I didn't know that. Through an ill-conceived notion, it was firmly put in my mind, it was hardware. So when I thought about 2038, I was always thinking about a hardware problem, not a software problem. And luckily, I knew a little bit about Dunning-Kruger, and I knew enough that in my ignorance, I shouldn't say more than I ever said. So I was lucky. And that's the only way I can put it. I was lucky because I never started to voice opinions about something I didn't know. Now, I brought James on because he knows a little bit more about it than I do. And he's more interested and he's more likely to be involved in 2038 than I am because I'm not going to do this again. So I'm going to ask James today to explain as if, there's an internet phrase, as if I was five, but the image we're doing today is a little bit younger than five. I want you to explain to me, James, what exactly this 2038 problem is and explain like I'm a total noob. <laughs> Thanks again, Peter. That's a great, uh, a great handoff. And it makes me chuckle a little bit because I have a very, very great friend who has always said, explained it to me like I'm a two-year-old. And it's just one of the wisest things that anyone's ever said to me. And he does it all the time. So uh, we'll reach out to that. And I'd like to start off by saying, like you, I didn't really have my eyes on 2038 either. It just wasn't on my radar. So a lot of the research I've done now recently has uh, been new information to me. So 
I'd like to start with an initial point saying that there are significant risks and similar in some ways to Y2K, much of that risk is not clearly defined yet, meaning from this perspective, 18 years in advance of the deadline, it's not yet clearly defined what the exact risks are or are likely to be when we get there. So here's my explain it like I'm five version of Y 2038, uh, which has also been touted as Unix 2038 and Y 2K 38. Uh, from what I've seen. Uh, first, calling it a Unix problem is not accurate enough. Uh, what I understand the problem to be is, um, in very basic terms, what is the biggest number, uh, the problem is related to, what is the biggest integer number that can be represented in some systems? And we'll get into what those some systems are a little bit more in a minute. But there's two key points. There's a biggest signed integer number that's possible to represent in a 32-bit system. So let me go a little deeper. Uh, the core of the issue is that um, the way time is recorded and manipulated in computer systems is an offset number uh, expressed as the number of seconds that have elapsed since uh, a given time. And in this case, the given time is the first second of January 1st, 1970. So I was alluding earlier to the maximum signed integer value. So let me clarify a little bit. The maximum signed integer value in a 32-bit construct is this 2,147,483,647 seconds. The reason this is an impact is because when you start counting at January 1st, 1970, and you count that number of seconds out, you end up at, uh, what is it, uh, 3.14.07 UTC or universal, sorry, coordinated universal time on January 19th, 2038. So the impact of Y2K exists because systems, and that could be hardware and will be, hardware, software, applications, meaning business applications or industry applications and operating systems that are built on a 32-bit framework or are operating under a 32-bit framework can only store and manage times up to this 2 million, 2 billion some odd number. And that's the number of seconds past January 1, 1970. So there's a lot of tech talk that can be used to explain why, but it all boils down to the fact that in simplest terms, 32-bit systems cannot calculate dates any later than a specific number of seconds into January 19, 2038. And what industry, what computer industry refers to that as is a, an overflow problem. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to hand back to you because I know that you've talked a lot about overflow problems for a long time in a lot of different cases, and I think you might be able to have some fun with it. So uh, if I may, can I hand back to you? Absolutely. Yeah, all of Y2K was an overflow problem. The overflow problem with Y2K was we stored two digits for the year, which means that we could only count years up to 99, 1999, because that was the assumption. 
And when we went over that, it went back to zero, zero, and we assumed it was 1900. The 32-bit overflow problem is almost identical, except it's more bits. It's more digits. We have 31 bits that we can store information in. Where'd the other one go, Peter? Well, the other one is used for the sign. We have 32 bits to put the number in, but it's a signed number. The leftmost bit identifies whether it's a plus, uh, sorry, a negative or a plus. So we can't use that. We have 31 digits. If you spread them out, you'd see 31 zeros in a row on January the 1st, 1970, 0000000. That's midnight on that date. Okay. One second later, we add one to that number. And then we get 30 zeros and a one. And now it is one second past midnight on January the 1st, 1970. And so on and so forth. It keeps ticking, tick, tock, tick, tock, in the computer, counting off the seconds. Well, on the January the 19th, 2038, three o'clock in the morning, 14 minutes past the hour, six seconds into that minute, we have all ones except a zero at the end. And we tick a, a second. And now at January the 19th, 2038, 3 a.m., 14 minutes and seven seconds, that 31 bits of information that we have are all ones. When we put another one in there, it ripples down and we get back zeros again throughout the entire number. It's just overflowed, which means that it, the computer thinks, and this again is the problem, the computer doesn't know that this is stupid. The computer, the way we've designed it, says, oh, it's January the 1st, 1970, midnight, and it doesn't know any better. And that's the problem. And that's the problem that happens at 2038, January the 19th, 3 o'clock in the morning, 14 minutes past the hour, 7 seconds in. This is what's going to happen. If your computer application is using the system date and it hasn't taken this into account, things start going awry the same way they did with Y2K. That's the problem. Now, there's a solution, and the solu one solution is that is that we don't use 32 bits. We use 64 bits, and we get much, much bigger numbers when you can use that many bits of information to store the number of seconds past a particular date. Well, how much longer? Well, not a couple of years longer. If we had a 64-bit machine storing the date the way we store it on a 32-bit machine, it will not overflow for 292 billion years from today give or take a couple of hours, if you get my drift. And even I, the Y2K guy, am willing to state someone will fix it by then. <laughs> and if they don't, <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. You can That's see, well beyond each of us. Yeah, well, a little bit, just a tad. So you can see why both James and myself, and I assume many, many other people who are involved in Y2K, we were aware of the 32-bit problem, 2038 rollover problem, but we really didn't care. 
because we had a bigger problem, more imminent problem. And since we're now, what are we now, 2020? 2038 is 18 years out. It's not quite ready to start worrying about it, but we'd like to lay the groundwork for why this needs to be addressed. And perhaps if we're able to shape the size of this a little bit, how big a problem is this really with our existing hardware and software? And at this point, I'm out of my depth again. So I'm gonna hand it back to James. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. That's a, a great expression of a complex problem, making it look simple. And it essentially is a simple problem. The problem, much like in the Y2K instance, is not the degree of complexity with the core problem itself. It's the spread of that degree of complexity throughout so many lines of code in so many systems that are talking back and forth with each other and that are making impactful decisions based on their ability to manage a number within that construct. Uh, would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Exactly. So now we're kind of at the point, so what systems specifically are at risk? And that's really the important question to me at this point. And before we launch into that, I'd like to point out also that you mentioned we have 18 years to go before we get to 2038, and that's absolutely true. But if we don't attack it early enough, then we're gonna possibly find ourselves in a similar scenario to the lead up to Y2K, where not everybody attacked it aggressively enough or assertively enough, let's say, early enough. So we got to the point we had to make limited fixes which had a time fence effect on them so that they expired at some point in time in the future which again as you said we didn't care about because we had a more critical immediate issue to deal with but we have seen y2k time fence has expired issues coming up recently and we have already had some industries where they have to like mortgages or long-term financing or long-term maintenance programs, they've had to already deal with the 2038 problem because they're forecasting things beyond the year 2038. Also, you've seen examples of that, I'm sure. Well, it's difficult. See, here's the problem. Once you've gotten the system date from the system, whether it's a 32-bit year digit we're pulling in, or the, sorry, 32-bit date we're pulling in, or the 64 date, 64 bit date that we're pulling in. The question becomes, what is it that we're doing with that? If we're taking that information and putting it into a normal year, 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 month, month, day, day field, then we don't have a 2038 problem. If we're bringing the date in properly, if we're maintaining that date as a 32 bit counter, then we have the problem. And the challenge is going to be to figure out, are we doing it right? This is one of those situations where if we're following the standards properly of date representation, using the ISO date recommended date standard, we don't have an issue. But the question is, are we? There's a hardware issue, an operating system issue, and an applications issue. We solve the hardware problem by going to 64-bit machines. But we have to have the right operating system on it. I have a 64-bit uh, PC on my, on my desk. 
I can use a 32-bit operating system on that. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a problem as long as my 32-bit operating system knows how to do the update properly. And this is where it gets complicated and very ambiguous, to be very, very honest. I don't know how many types of programming shortcuts we've taken that will result in 2038 causing us an issue. Exactly. And that's what brings us back to what specifically are the systems that are at risk. And it's a difficult question to answer because you could say any system with a 32-bit processor as a hardware platform is potentially at risk, although not necessarily absolutely at risk, guaranteed. It's potentially at risk. Uh, you could also say that any system running 32-bit compiled code is potentially at risk. And I'll just stop for a second and say, what's the difference between compiled code and, and human interface code? When we write programs, we write them in a language that we can read and we can manipulate and then we debug them and then we make sure they're running the way we want and all of the design features are in, et cetera, et cetera. And then we compile that source code into a machine language or file called compiled code. Now, if the compiled code is compiled in a 32-bit platform, that means that limitation is built into that machine language compiled code. <clears throat> and in order to fix it, part of the fix, in some cases at least, is going to be to recompile that um, source code into a new version of the compiled code. And if you don't have the right version of the source code anymore, and you may not, it happens. There's, I don't know, probably billions of pieces of source code out there. Uh, that could be part of a problem as well. So that loops back to any system running a 32-bit compiled code is potentially at risk. And that compiled code may be application code, uh, meaning like some kind of a business system, an accounting system, an inventory system, or a communication system, or it could be operating system related which I could interject in the Unix case, at least, there's a kernel and a shell where the kernel is the machine uh, hardware control part of the operating system. And the kernel is the user interface control portion of the systems. The application talks to the kernel through the shell, loosely put. Um, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, as I like to say. Um, there's another thing that I came across which really surprised me. At the moment, many, and I don't want to say most, but certainly many handheld devices like our smartphones, for example, are potentially at risk because many of them are not in a, uh, they're not built on a 64-bit platform. They're built in a 32-bit platform, which loops back to this overflow problem and potentially has issues. So having said all of that, we can say uh, by 2038, most of these issues may be solved, but that was not true in the case of Y2K. And it didn't appear to be a monolithic event because of all the work that was done behind the scenes. Similarly, in order for 2038 to be a uh, similar quote, not event, there's going to be a ton of work that's done behind the scenes. That includes taking inventory of what systems we have, uh, 
analyzing to see if there actually is an issue, <clears throat> figuring out and developing mitigation strategies to deal with what issues we do find, deploying those strategies, testing those strategies, and the deployed fixes, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the problem, the scope of the problem is currently undefined, but certainly much bigger than it appears to be on the surface. And, and that's another way that it's very similar to the Y2K problem. So that's <clears throat> kind of leading to the conclusion that uh, although this is not the same issue as Y2K, it kind of is in some ways, and it certainly is in that there's many similarities. Uh, those similarities include, first, we're talking about it well in advance. We're talking about a problem that isn't going to rear its head for another 18 and some odd years, or 17 and some odd years. Uh, some of these systems and applications which may be at risk at this time will no longer be at risk by the time we get there because they will have been replaced or there will have been strategies developed to overcome whatever issues would surface at that time. Uh, we don't at this time really have a complete inventory because I'm sure not everybody has done it. Uh, therefore, we don't really have a true estimate of what the effort involved is. Uh, even if we did have an estimate at this point, you always find more than you anticipate when you get into the details. Uh, so as a result, um, or one other point where it's similar is that most of this is going to be done outside of the media spotlight because it's just one of many things that are going on. And in that way, it's similar to Y2K as well. Most of the work, the vast majority for sure, of the work that was done to mitigate the Y2K overflow issue is was done out of the media spotlight and most people in fact, to some degree, myself, who was in the trenches dealing with it at the time, I didn't have a good view of the scope of the issue at the time because I was too busy dealing with the weeds that were in my trench that I was responsible for. And that same thing is going to happen with this Y2038 issue. And there's other issues that are on the horizon that we'll be talking about over the next couple of sessions that we're planning on doing, which are similar in, a, in the same way meeting similar in the way that it's things that occur outside of the media spotlight and most people are just not informed of because they haven't been told anything about. So that's kind of the wrap up of the 10,000 foot overview of what the initial analysis has given us. I'd say the conclusion that we can draw from this is that uh, we have more research to do. Uh, others have more research to do. If we could reach out to and get some uh, some technical expertise to weigh in on what the some of the scopes of the problems are that we haven't yet in, yet uh, discovered, that would be good. And uh, we'll probably be talking about this more in a longer episode coming up sometime soon. There's one other thing you didn't touch on, and it's a thing I think that where Y2K has actually made 2038 going to be it's going to be more difficult and it's going to be more difficult in the following sense people are of the firm belief most people unfortunately are of the firm belief that y2k was a hoax that nothing happened it was never an issue and here we are we're going to come along <laughs> with another one 
oh, there's a 2038 mm -hmm. problem. And I believe they're just going to yes. roll their eyes at us. They're going to say, we've been here before. We bought the pig in a poke, and we're not going to be fooled again. And I think that is mm -hmm. something that is going to add a complexity to this problem that we didn't have to contend with with Y2K. So this was just I a agree. teaser. <laughs> this was just a teaser. Uh, we are going to return to this, possibly for a full hour. And the hope is, as James has mentioned, that we get some real experts in Unix and the Unix systems to come on board to have a conversation with us during one of the interview sessions. So we'll see what happens. We have some names in mind, but we don't want to mention them in case that they uh, are unwilling to be a part of this or don't have the time, whichever. This has been the one of the first, well, this has been the first uh, tangential IT discussion that we've had as part of the Y2K and Autobiography podcast. Our next topic is going to be how computers fail in strange and mysterious ways. Because have we got some stories to tell you. Thanks to James for that little insert. That's it, folks, for this week's uh, a bit of a hodgepodge, a couple of articles from the past. Uh, a new feature inside the podcast that will last as long as the podcast lasts, which would be about three or four more episodes. And I think I've said everything that I need to say about this subject. If you want to support us, uh, you can do so in two ways. First, the most appreciative, of course, financially. And you can do that by going to vimeo.com slash on demand slash Y2K. And there you will find the interviews. There are more interviews now than there are podcast sessions. And they are from some really interesting people who were involved in Y2K. And you get to hear the stories from the trenches. You could subscribe for a month or two. You could download one of them. You can view them individually. However you choose to do it would be appreciated. The other way, equally important in many ways, is some social media love. If you're on Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram and you're finding this podcast to be of interest, and maybe you have some friends in the IT industry who don't know about it, then write a review or two. It doesn't have to be on iTunes. And actually, I'd prefer it to be in places like LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter. Write a review about it. You know, use the hashtag, hashtag Y2K. Write a review. Tell people what it's like. Provide a link. And that would be really supportive, and I'd be greatly appreciative of it. So take care, folks. Be good in these trying times. Oh, one piece of more information. CNN will be doing an eight-part series on Y2K. Now, I wish I could tell you when, but the problem these days is that there's not enough space in the news cycle. It seems that with elections and COVID and explosions in Beirut, and murder hornets, and ants flying around the world, and dust storms, and tornadoes, and hurricanes, Y2K is <laughs> hardly important or relevant to the uh, current news scene. Regardless, be good, be safe, and we will get through all of this somehow. Take care, folks. <laughs>